This is the Healthynomics Podcast, episode 23, with guest Rich Rule. Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, Mark Kennedy. Before we get today's interview with Rich Rule, I want to let you know about a free email course I have for beginner runners and those that have run before but struggled with consistency and making running a part of their life. Injury prevention, running for weight loss, running form, how to deal with pain, and lots, lots more. Check out the course at freerunningcourse.com. On to today's interview with Rich Roll. Today, Rich and I talk about nutrition, how exercise can change your mindset and outlook on life, the benefits of running slow and not worrying about speed, a little bit about his new book called The Plant Power Way, which is due to come out very soon, and lots, lots more. For those of you not familiar with Rich and his work, here's a bit about him. Rich is a graduate of Stanford University and Cornell Law School, a 47-year-old accomplished vegan ultra-endurance athlete and former entertainment attorney turned full-time wellness and plant-based nutrition advocate. He's a motivational speaker, husband, father of four, and an inspiration to people worldwide as a transformative example of courageous, healthy living. In 2012, Rich became the number one best-selling author of his book, Finding Ultra, Rejecting Middle Age, Becoming One of the World's Fittest Men, and Discovering Myself. Rich also launched the wildly popular Rich Roll podcast, which persistently sits atop the iTunes top 10 list. You'll want to listen all the way to the end as I'm giving away a copy of Rich's new book, The Plan Power Way, to one lucky listener. So stay tuned. The show notes for this episode will be at healthynomics.com slash 23, and there you'll be able to download a transcript of the episode. Enjoy the show, everybody. Welcome to the Healthy Nomics Podcast. Boosting your health and fitness IQ, one episode at a time. And now your host, Mark Kennedy. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the Healthynomics Podcast. I've got Rich Roll as my special guest today. Rich, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, good. Thanks. Uh, nice to uh, to finally get to speak to you. I feel like I know you after listening to probably, I mean, I don't know. How many episodes of your podcast do you have? Uh, I think we're at 140 at this point. Okay. Quite I, a few. I'd say I've listened to probably... I probably listened to eighty of them, <laughs> so I feel like uh, I know I know you pretty well. <laughs> you do, you know me better than uh, probably my parents at this point. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so for those listening who aren't familiar with you and your story, uh, if you don't mind, can you just take a few minutes and um, take us back to where you grew up, where you're from? Um, and I know you were um, a pretty big swimmer, so maybe just touch upon that, and then what you're up to now. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I was, you know, I have to say I was kind of an awkward, insecure kid. You know, I, I'm one of those kids that could just never throw a ball or, or shoot a basket properly. And around the time I turned 10, I discovered swimming and it was kind of the first thing that I was naturally good at. Um, and I just threw myself into 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 that sport with everything that I had. And I quickly realized that uh, you know, I had some acumen in the sport, but I wasn't super, super gifted. And I was, you know, I sort of went up to the club level and, and had trouble kind of keeping up with everybody. But I also realized that I could kind of uh, bridge that talent deficit gap by working harder than my friends. And, um, and that's what I did. You know, I was always known as a workhorse in practice. And, and so by the time I was 18, I'd reached a, a pretty good level of proficiency. I had a national ranking and started getting recruited at colleges. And, and you know, I'd struggled in school when I was a youngster, but swimming really, you know, taught me the tools that I needed to become a good student. And so by the time I was 18, I 
got into all the colleges I applied to. You know, I got into Harvard and Princeton and ended up heading west to Stanford, which was, you know, obviously a great, you know, academic institution, but also the the number one swim swim program in the country at the time. So what year was that? <clears throat> that was in 1985. Okay. Um, and it was, you know, I had a choice. I could go to an Ivy League school and be a big fish in a small pond or, or go to Stanford and be a very tiny minnow in a very large pond. Uh, and I figured, you know what, I don't, how am I going to find out how good I am? You know, the only way to do that is to throw myself into this, you know, world where I could train with uh, world record holders and gold medalists and, and the like. And, and mm -hmm. so that's what I did. I mean, you know, we had guys like Pablo Morales on our team and John Moffat and Jeff Kostoff, who were the great, you know, champions of, of that era. Um, but, you know, once I got to college, I discovered something else that I enjoyed a little bit more than swimming, and that was partying. <laughs> and it, it didn't take long before, uh, you know, my, my partying sort of took over and kind of dashed all my hopes and dreams. Uh, you know, I, I really lost interest in swimming and, and kind of lost every interest in, in everything aspirational. You know, I, I was sort of one of those kids who had the world at his feet, um, you know, when I was 18 and I started kind of a slow slide, uh, towards squandering all of those opportunities that I had worked so hard to create and spent 15 years kind of, you know, progressively becoming a, a better and better alcoholic. Uh, after college, I went to New York city, which is kind of like Disneyland for alcoholics and, yeah. and, you know, partied my way, uh, through that experience for a couple of years, somehow managed to get into law school. I was the last one admitted to the, to my Cornell class, um, off the wait list. Uh, and, and somehow, I don't know how I got through law school cause you know, my drinking really kicked into a different level. Mm -hmm. and, you know, so I was sort of high functioning, like I was able to get a job at a law firm out of law school in San Francisco. And then I got a job in, in Los Angeles at a pretty prestigious law firm down there. And, you know, meanwhile, kind of living this double life where, you know, I had this secret life where I was, you know, drinking and it was get, getting more and more out of control. And once I moved to L.A., uh, the cops got involved and there was a lot of DUIs and, and institutions that uh, started to have a say in, in what, you know, what was going on with my freedom. And it all kind of came to a pretty nasty head uh, around the time I was 31 and, and, you know, realized, you know, I'd known I was an alcoholic for a long time. But, you know, I finally had that moment that you hear about, uh, that moment of clarity where I woke up one morning, hung over and decided, you know, this is the day I'm going to get sober. And, Shipped myself off to a rehab in, in rural Oregon where I spent 100 days, which is a pretty long time to be kind of, you know, s sort of voluntarily incarcerated mm -hmm. in, yeah. you know, what is really a mental institution, you know, like my best thinking got me institutionalized. So, yeah. but that was, uh, you know, a, a, that experience saved my life and it, and it really introduced me to new ways of, of approaching, you know, my life and, and helped put into perspective what's really important. And kind of made my way back into the world and, and became very focused on trying to repair all the wreckage that I created as a result of my, you know, drinking and drug abuse. And, you know, I really kind of, I think in retrospect was a bit of a workaholic because I was so intent on getting back where I was, uh, and, and was able to do that. You know, by the time I was 39, I, I had a, a, you know, I was on the partnership track at a prestigious law firm. I had met my wife. We were we were creating a family together. Uh, we built a home together. I had a really nice car in the driveway. And, you know, by all accounts, from if you were an outsider looking in, you'd say, you know, this guy is. He's you know, got a maid. Yeah, he's on the precipice of the American dream. But, 
you know, inside I was kind of dying. You know, I had this, this, this hole in my spirit, this, this undeniable feeling that I was living somebody else's life. And, you know, I was not fulfilled in my career and was kind of feeling cheated because my whole life was premised on this idea of the American dream, you know, work hard, study hard, get into a good college, get a good job, you know, go the extra mile and climb the corporate ladder. And, the implicit promise, of course, is that at the at the end of that rainbow, uh, you know, in addition to the pot of gold is this idea that it's going to make you happy. And mm-hmm. it wasn't making me happy. So I'm having this kind of existential crisis. And and that really started to, uh, you know, weigh on me. And meanwhile, you know, during this period of kind of workaholism, I really just wasn't taking care of myself. You know, I was subsisting on what I like to call the the window diet, uh, which means if you uh, roll down your window at a fine dining establishment and they hand you food through the window of your car, that's what you eat. And, you know, that's really the way that I had been eating for, you know, the better part of my adult life. You know, it's sort of habits around diet that I learned when I was swimming. You know, when you're swimming four hours a day and you're 17 years old, it's just about calories. Yeah, and, you're just you know, a furnace. You probably put anything yeah, in exactly. your body. Yeah, and then swimming stops, but you're left with those habits. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, Burger King, McDonald's, Jack in the Box, In-N-Out Burger, Pizza Hut, like you name it, that's pretty much what I was eating. And, you know, so when you start to get older, that stuff catches up to you. And so by the time I was 39, I was 50 pounds overweight and, you know, never morbidly obese or anything, but just kind of depressed and lethargic, uh, you know, pretty much a classic couch potato kind of hurtling into middle age and, you know, getting fatter, you know, with every, every subsequent year. And, 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 and basically what happened was late one night, uh, you know, I was walking up the staircase to go to bed and I had to take a break halfway up a simple flight of stairs. I was winded and out of breath and sweat on my brow and tightness in my chest and, and really the fear of God, you know, I really thought like I, I could be having a heart attack and wow. that really snapped everything into focus for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was very similar to the day that I decided I was going to get sober. And, you know, what, of course, you know, I knew that I was not treating myself well, but willingness is a different matter. And, and, and that kind of moment, you know, really crystallized, not only the sense that I needed to change how I was living my life, but that I had the willingness to do something about it. And because I had had such a profound experience when I made that decision to get sober, I realized that I was having kind of another opportunity to once again, um, you know, take stock of my life and, and do something about it. And, and, and really, that's what I did. And that was the beginning of kind of my uh, exploration of, of diet and, and wellness and, and fitness and kind of everything that, that, that I've you know, been able to do was really boils down to you know, that epiphany on that evening. Yeah. And um, I mean, for those listening, Rich just gave sort of the Coles notes version of his life, but uh, I'd highly recommend you check out his book, uh, Finding Ultra, which um, when did that come out, Rich? Uh, two, three years ago? or Yeah, it was uh, May of 2012. So about three years ago, almost at this point. Okay. Anyways, um, if you are looking for some motivation or you just simply want to read uh, an amazing story that's just well told, um, check out that book for sure. Um, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it, Rich. It was a, a fantastic read. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I appreciate um, that. And going back to your book, I just recalled uh, a moment. So you, you led us up to this point where you were around 40 years old and you're unfit and you, you're struggling to get up your stairs. I remember you deciding to go out for a run when you probably hadn't done that in 
you know, probably quite some time. And uh, we've got a lot of runners who listen to this um, and, and new runners. So like they are possibly at the same sort of stage. So what was going through your head that that time you said, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to go for a run. And I know I think you're out in the trail somewhere out near L.A., but maybe you can uh-huh. tell, tell that story and how that run feel. Did it hurt? Um, what, was sort of the, <laughs> what were the challenges sort of around just getting the motivation and building it up to getting out on that first run? Well, I mean, I think the run you're talking about, what wasn't, are you talking about the run where I just kept going and felt great? Um, the long one? Yeah, maybe it was that one. I just, I just yeah, remember yeah. it was right when you were just sort of decided to exercise again, then you went for a run and you just, yeah, you went and it, it felt good, but it was also sort of a, a turning point uh, in your, in your comeback. Yeah. So what happened was, you know, in the, in the wake of this kind of staircase incident, you know, I, I started playing around with, with diet and nutrition. I did a seven day, you know, vegetable juice cleanse. Um, I, I kind of explored eating a vegetarian diet and different kinds of diet and, and, and nothing was seeming to really work. And then I kind of, uh, you know, basically as a last, last ditch effort to try to, you know, sort of find something that would work for me, um, I thought I would try, uh, you know, 100% plant-based diet. And I didn't really think that that was going to make any difference. And, and truth be told, like I was hoping it wouldn't because it wasn't something I was that excited about, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I did that and it really made a huge difference in my energy levels and, and my energy went through the roof. I felt like it was restoring my vitality in a way that I could have never predicted. And, and I had so much energy all of a sudden that I, that I suddenly found myself enthusiastic about moving my body again, which is something I hadn't felt, uh, in quite some time. And so, you know, I sort of gingerly started exercising again and I had no aspirations of returning to becoming a competitive athlete. I just started to enjoy what it felt like to reconnect with my body and and how much I had enjoyed that as a kid, you know, swimming was such a huge part of my life. And, you know, and, and that was a period of time in which I, you know, I, I, I really, you know, sort of relished pushing myself and I knew how to train and, so I was just kind of reconnecting with that. And I bought a pair of running shoes. My wife bought me a bike for my 40th birthday. And I was just kind of playing around. But I was I was pretty consistent. You know, every day I'd go out and do something. And mm-hmm. it was nothing, anything, you know, it was no big deal, really. Um, and uh, this had been going on for maybe three or four months. And I was just sort of beginning to get fit. I lost, you know, I, lo- I lost almost all the weight, like, really quickly. Like, I, and I was just feeling strong again. And I went out for uh, a run on a weekday morning. And again, this is about three or four months into it. So it wasn't right away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, my, my typical run was 45 minutes to an hour, maybe six, seven miles at most. And, and on this particular day on a trail near my house, uh, you know, from the very first, you know, 10 minutes of running, I, I felt, you know, I, I knew something was different. You know, it was, I was having that experience that, you know, anybody who runs has probably had, I hope you've had at some point where you're just in the zone, right? Mm-hmm. Like that day where everything comes together and you just feel perfect, you feel bulletproof and you feel like you can just run forever. And that's what was happening on this day. And so I just kept going and I was going and going and I was, it was an out and back run <laughs> and it was a hot day in, in Los Angeles where I was running on the crest of these trails that kind of, um, you know, differentiate West Los Angeles from the Valley with these amazing views. And 
I was just enjoying it. And, you know, every step I took, I felt stronger than the step preceded it. And I just kept going. I didn't bring water with me or anything because <laughs> I wasn't planning on running that long. Yeah. And I realized, you know, wow, I've run about 12 miles, you know, away from my car. I better turn around. <laughs> you know, like I didn't want to like end up, you know, in a ditch, you know, with, with calf cramps or something like that. I didn't feel like I needed to turn around, but I felt like the prudent thing was to do yeah. that. And you know, ran strong all the way to the finish and realized, you know, later when I kind of looked at everything that I'd run, you know, about 24 miles that day. And I just couldn't believe it. You know, I just couldn't believe it was, it was, I just couldn't believe that my body could do that. Like it was just, it really blew the ceiling off of what I thought, you know, I was capable of. And, and, and I think that experience was, you know, very profound for me in, in terms of kind of, um, uh, you know, motivating me to look for a challenge to really test myself. Because if I could just go out on a casual weekday and do that, you know, what would it mean if I really prepared for something and, and tested myself? And, and really the question that I started to ponder for myself was, um, you know, the, the, the limits of my own personal potential and, and the resiliency of, of the human body, the incredible resiliency of the human body, because, you know, I, I spent most of my formative years abusing myself with drugs and alcohol and terrible diet and, you know, stressful lifestyle and all these sorts of things. And in a relatively short period, I seem to have done a complete 180, you know, and, and I thought like, wow, you know, that's amazing how quickly the body can bounce back when you treat it right, you know, and, and it really kind of solved that equation for me of, you know, food is medicine. And, and when you treat the body correctly, like it responds, you know, amazingly. So that's really kind of what then fueled me to look for an athletic challenge and, and kind of re-enter the world of, of being a competitive athlete. Well, it's an amazing story. And that's uh, taking a casual weekday run to a new level. I guess you were two miles short of a marathon there. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. You know, believe me, I was sore the next day. But, yeah. and, and, and it didn't feel so good the next day. You know, it was just that one moment, you know, that you that you have. But, uh, but it was cool. You know, I hope that everybody who runs or, you know, has that experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly a runner uh, as well. And uh, yeah, it's I mean, you don't get them all the time. But yeah, sometimes it happens. And you've got to and you've got a certain distance scheduled and you're just like, yep, screw that. I'm, I'm going to keep going and I'm going to go, I'm going to push hard cause I can't get tired today. And, uh, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, cool. Now, so do you have any sort of advice for other people who are, you know, struggling maybe with weights or they're not eating healthily and they just want to, they just need a boost to get going. And, um, you know, a lot of people struggle just with making, exercise whether it's running or biking or whatever just making it a habit because you know i think yeah. often they just try to do too much too soon but uh what, what would you say to these people i think uh you know two kind of principles that have been very helpful to me i mean first of all you know i'm the first to admit that like pain is is really the only thing that's ever motivated motivated me to change my errant ways like you know i'll i'll like treat myself poorly until I'm in so much pain that I'm almost left with no choice but to change. Yeah. You know, that's how I got sober. That's how I changed my diet, all these sorts of things. So, you know, the trick is how, you know, the, the truth is you don't have to be in pain to make that change. It's just harder. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, and for me, I'm always trying to evolve and grow and, you know, it's a struggle. Like, what's the next thing that I need to work on? Like, you know, what can I change without having to reach some bottom before I'm compelled to change? And, you know, a couple of things that helped me. The first thing is I always go back to this and maybe it sounds trite or or pithy, but uh, is the idea that mood follows action right? Mood mm-hmm. follows action. It's not the other way around. And for some reason, as human beings, we want to believe it's otherwise. We want to, you know, we want to, we want to sort of subscribe to this idea of, well, you know, I just don't feel like it right now. I'll do it when I feel better, mm-hmm. you know? And, and we just don't function that way. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's that thing of, of, you know, when you don't feel like running and you kind of turn your brain off and you do it anyway, despite whatever messages are, are impulsing, you know, your brain, you just like take the action in spite of your mood and, you know, you go out and you do it, you come back and you never say, I wish I hadn't done that. Right. You're just so glad and you feel better. It's like the action is what changes your emotional state. Right. So you got to take the action first. And I think implicit in that is this idea of mindfulness. Right. This idea that, um, you know, and I've learned this through meditation practice that. A, your emotions are just emotions. They may, you know, it may feel like they want to kill you, but they won't. They're just feelings. And you have a choice about whether you're going to entertain them, pay attention to them and give them energy or ignore them. So when your mind is chattering and sort of telling you, oh, eat that donut or it's okay or, or whatever it is to understand that, you know, your higher consciousness is an entity that is distinct from that mind. And, and you know, you have the power to, um, you know, control that, you know, with some diligence and, and, and to the extent that you can do that, you can realize like, oh, I understand my brain is telling me, uh, that I should do this thing, but you know what, I'm not going to listen to my brain. I'm going to do this other thing, you know, and to be able to draw that distinction, I think is super powerful. Um, the other thing, uh, that I would say is that, is that, uh, perfection is the enemy of progress. And I think when we set out, you know, with, whether it's an athletic goal or a dietary goal, maybe you want to lose a certain amount of weight or whatever it is, we generally start off with a lot of enthusiasm and that enthusiasm tends to wane pretty quickly until we get discouraged. And, and, you know, for the most part, most people just fall off the wagon. And I think a lot of that can be boiled down to this idea of trying to do it perfectly. You know, let's say, for example, you want to eat a plant-based diet, right? Like that's your goal. And two weeks in, you know, it's all good. And then you find yourself face planted in a pint of Haagen-Dazs one night and you, <laughs> you shame your, you go into a shame spiral and, you know, judge yeah. yourself and beat yourself up and say, I can't do this. It's too hard. And you just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, forget it, you know, and, yeah. and, and you get defeatist about it as opposed to, just trying to, it's good to have goals, of course, goals create structure and, and all that good stuff. But at the same time, I think it's important to just stay in the moment of what you're doing and say, I don't have to worry about what's happening tomorrow. Right now, I just have to concern myself with what I'm eating next. How can I make a better choice? And and to understand that if you fall off and you you make the wrong choice, that that's okay. That failure is part of the success equation. And you know, we should fail often and we should embrace failure and, and use it as an opportunity to learn. Like, why did I make that choice? What was going on with me emotionally? You know, what was going on with me in terms of how I structured my day that led me to that choice? And to the extent that you can then leverage that to make a better choice next time, I think that's a better kind of perspective and recipe to move forward more productively. Yeah, I like that. The um, the point you made about perfection being the enemy of progress, that really resonates with me right now. I'm 
in the midst of training for a half marathon, which is on May 3rd. And, um, I got a bit of an Achilles issue mm. and, and, uh, you want your training to go so perfectly and you're, you're hitting every run. And then when it doesn't, you're, you know, you have, I have these moments like, Oh, should I maybe not run the race now because things aren't going perfectly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you got to talk yourself into, so, you know, anyways, I'm getting some treatment and give it a bit of rest. So I, I fully plan to run my race, but, uh, it took me a while to get over that. Like I felt almost sorry for myself because I wasn't executing my training plan perfectly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, misery comes from a lack of acceptance for what is, right? It's like you want it to be different. And so you're constantly thinking, I wish this, I wish it wasn't like this. And that's just going to make you unhappy. And to the extent that you can just accept what is happening and this is what's going on, this is what I have to deal with, try to make the best of it, um, you can release some of that, you know, energy because you can't, you can't, you can take those proactive actions to try to heal yourself and get ready. But, you know, there's only so much that, that you can do. Right. And so in the grand scheme of your life, it's a learning experience, you know, and, and, you know, maybe you can look and see, well, what did I do that led me to this injury? How can I, you know, avoid that next time? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so I got one last little thing I want to talk about before we transition over to diet. Um, and that's, uh, you talk a lot about, uh, in your book, uh, about when you're training for your ultra marathons and such, um, about low intensity, low intensity training. Um, so if you want to get, I guess, science techie, a geek out on it, zone two, um, which is zone two of your heart rate. But, um, why do you, why did you, um, I guess, embrace that type of training. And do you recommend that sort of that low intensity training for people? And, and if you do, um, I guess for people that, you know, have goals of just being fit, but sort of why, I guess curious to know what are your thoughts around that type of training and, yeah, and what's yeah, it yeah. good for? I mean, you know, I think it depends on who you are and what you're training for. For and, sure. And, yeah. and your level of, of, you know, your, your, your basic aptitude level. And, you know, I learned in swimming that, that my body responds really well to volume. And, uh, and, you know, when I do a lot of high intensity stuff, uh, you know, I, 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 it, it, sometimes it doesn't work so well for me. And so that's just me. Right. And I also realized that the longer the distance, the better for me in terms of how I can do, I, I guess my slow twitch muscles are extra slow twitch. I don't know. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the, the kind of, um, the kind of, uh, approach to training that I subscribe to is, is really the mathetone method. And the idea behind it is, um, based on, uh, expanding your aerobic capacity and becoming very efficient at that. And what that means is, um, when you break it down, our bodies have two, um, energy burning systems. We have our aerobic system, which relies on fat and oxygen to propel us. And that's the kind of system that functions when we're at low intensity, you know, sort of conversational pace when you're running, if you will. And, a higher intensity starts to segue into using your anaerobic uh, system of energy, and that requires glycogen uh, in order to function. Um, You can go all day on burning your fat stores for fuel. There's no, I don't care how skinny you are, you have untapped reservoirs of that available to you when you've kind of trained yourself to get efficient in that, in that zone. Uh, but the anaerobic zone, once you start using, relying on that uh, as your energy sort of system, um, we only have about 45 minutes worth of glycogen stores to propel us. So that means that if you want to train for longer distances, at that higher intensity level, you have to start supplementing with, you know, sort of 
foods and, and, you know, drinks and gels and, and the like. And, you know, in the ultra endurance context, um, it's really not about going fast. It's about training yourself to avoid slowing down. And, you know, even the most elite ultra marathoners, when you go to these super long races, like I, I crewed for Dean Karnazes at Badwater. And I think people who are uninitiated and don't really know that much about this world would think that a guy like Dean is just crushing it, you know, running the entire time. And, yeah. and they would be shocked to see how much walking is involved. For sure. You know, so, so it's really not about um, you know, holding, you know, a 7.30 pace for the entire thing. It's about conservation. It's about economy and it's about efficiency. So the pri- as I said in Finding Ultra, you know, the prize doesn't go to the fastest person. It goes down to, it goes to the person who slows down the least. And, and in my experience, the best way of kind of preparing for that is to really focus on, on, on training your aerobic zone, which means a lot of volume at that lower intensity level, which at first, when you first start doing it, like you get your, you, you do a lactate test and you, you really establish what those heart rate zones are for you. Mm-hmm. And it will feel like you go out and you try to cap your heart rate, make sure it doesn't exceed that zone two threshold. And you might feel like you didn't get anything out of the workout, um, but you're just beginning to develop that aerobic engine. And so instead of training above that, I found that by training within that range, that, you know, what started out for me as, you know, a 10 minute per mile pace, because if I went any further than that, my heart rate would start to escalate. Um, you know, over time I was able to, you know, push the ceiling on my pace by never exceeding that heart rate to the extent that I finally got down to being able to run like a, you know, a 645 pace without my heart rate going above 140 beats a minute. But it took a lot, it took a long time. Um, but you know, I became very efficient at running in that, in that zone. So my speed increased without doing speed work, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I think for, you know, the average runner out there, um, especially people that, you know, haven't really kind of studied this kind of stuff, uh, they spend far too much time training in, in, in what's called the gray zone. And that's sort of that, that, that sort of nether world in between your aerobic training and your anaerobic training. So, um, you're not really, uh, when you're, when you're training at that level, it's kind of like a brisk, like you go out, you run for 45 minutes, you feel like you got something done, but you weren't going slow enough to really develop that aerobic engine and you weren't going hard enough to improve your speed or improve your power. So if you do that, you will reach a certain level of proficiency but you're going to hit a glass ceiling and you're, you're going to have a difficult time kind of transcending that. And that's why you see so many people that go out and their 10K time is always kind of the same, right? Like they can never have that quantum uh, level of improvement. And so I think it's important to train at the polar opposites. Like you do your aerobic zone training and then you pick, you know, a couple days a week, two or three days a week where you do that super high intensity, mm-hmm. shorter interval type work or yeah. tempo work. Um, but I would say the gravamen of the, the kind of training that I do is, is very much, you know, it's boring. People say, how do I train for these races? Well, it's like, well, you go out and you do zone two and then you wake up the next day and you do zone two and then you do, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, it's not sexy. Um, but you know, when you start, when I start hearing about people talking about like, oh, you know, you don't have to run all these junk miles. Like, I, you know, I don't think that they're junk miles. You know, if you're doing it properly, every workout has a purpose. I don't consider them junk miles at all. I consider my aerobic zone training just as important as those, you know, sexy interval workouts that, that I do. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I think for people who are just sort of getting started too, like they need to realize that, um, 
zone two for them might mean mostly walking and that's okay because there's there's a lot of magic happening inside your body a lot of um, physiological physiological changes um, that are happening and improvements so um, for the first little while like yeah you find your heart rate's gonna you know creep up past zone two even if you just do a little bit of running so if that means you're doing mostly walking a little bit of running here and there that's that's what you do for a while and that and that's totally fine yeah you have to be cool with that and and that involves that's a different kind of discipline mm-hmm. right it, it 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 takes discipline to train hard but it also takes discipline to hold back yeah. and i think people don't really realize that and you know dave scott and mark allen the great ironman athletes they mm-hmm. talk about this and when they you know when they would start their season and they weren't really you know all that fit every time they hit a hill they would walk because they didn't want to exceed that aerobic threshold, you know? And, and so if those guys are walking in their training, you guys have permission to do it, you know, to, to kind of, you know, stick to that program. Um, yeah. and you know, everybody's different, but you know, I think it's, you know, people should, you can Google the Maffetone method. Uh, you can read, um, the Joe Friel talks about it extensively, a triathlon training Bible and, and Gordo Byrne, who's another, uh, triathlon coach has, has written a book called going long and, and they talk about this at length for people that want to kind of explore that a little more deeply. Yeah. I'll make sure I put a few links to those uh, resources you mentioned there into the show notes. Uh, well, that's great. So let's, uh, let's transition a little bit over to diet now, which is um, timely for you. I know you've got a new book coming out, but uh, you touched a bit on it uh, earlier in the, in the podcast, uh, but like, what's the difference between you in terms of your health vitality and happiness on your ritual diet when you were 39 versus your diet now i mean i can't even compare the two like i look at pictures of me from before i i don't even look like the same person you know i i would have to say it's impacted and positively affected every aspect of 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 who i am you know and you know of course I'm thinner, you know, and I'm more fit, but I would also say that I'm much more mentally focused. I'm much more present. Um, you know, I take a very, you know, diet is, you know, look, you know, food is medicine. Diet's the most important thing in terms of your health equation, but I take a, you know, a very comprehensive, um, view of what it means to be healthy. It begins and ends with what's on your plate, but it extends from there. It extends to, you know, meditation and mindfulness, emotional health, mental health, physical health, and all of these things, because you can eat a super clean diet, but if you're insane and you're always arguing with your wife or your husband or your boyfriend or girlfriend, then I don't consider you to be, you know, maximally healthy. So, you know, I I think that, uh, there's no, you know, it's sort of like the ripple effect is profound, right? Because you clean up your diet, and your energy is better. You you have you have more positivity in your life. You're more focused, and that impacts how you interact with other people. It impacts you know how you approach your profession, and you know it just kind of extends from there, like this massive domino effect. That when you look back, you know, for in my case, eight years now, I look back, and you know the changes are are massive and and completely unpredictable. Like I could have never predicted in a million years that, that this is what I was going to be doing with my life, you know, talking to you on a podcast that it was not my plan, you know? So, um, you know, I encourage everybody to, to, you know, be more mindful about the choices that they make with respect to their diet. And, you know, I mean, I'm not here to say that, you know, my way is the ultimate way for everybody, nor am I saying, you know, you should, you absolutely have to do it the way that, that I, that I do it. Um, but I think there's something profound 
um, about you know sort of taking stock of the uh, uh, of these choices that every that all of us make every day and, and trying to you know notch it up. Mm-hmm. So with that said, what are some simple things that people can do? Um, and and these people you know they may or may or may not be plant based. Um, Eaters, but what are some simple things they can do just to improve their general health with uh, with their diet? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, listen, whether you're a paleo or you're on the Mediterranean diet or you're vegan or you know whatever kind of healthy you know program you subscribe to, uh, the one commonality amongst every healthy diet program out there is a preponderance of plant-based foods. You know, more vegetables more, you know, nuts and seeds and, you know, foods close to their natural state. And so, you know, what I always say is start putting more vegetables on your plate. And it sounds so stupid, you know, it's like, duh, right? Like who doesn't know that? <laughs> yeah. And yet we don't do it, right? So if you're not ready to let go of that steak or that chicken breast or, or whatever it is, um, you know, I encourage people to rethink um, how they arrange their plate. So, you know, we we didn't evolve where now it's like meat has to be the center of every of every meal, right? But it, we didn't really evolve that way. Meat has always been like a delicacy and hard to come by. And I think it's important to you know kind of get back to that. So if you're not ready to you know go whole hog like me, um, you know make make the make the make the vegetables, the plant based foods, the focus of 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 your plate, and you know maybe push those other things to the side as a smaller side dish. You know, so it's a shifting of priorities. And I think the most powerful thing um, that that somebody could do that's that's easy to kind of you know incorporate into your life is to reimagine what breakfast is. You know, and I encourage everybody to instead of a stack of waffles or or whatever it is that you eat in the morning to uh, get used to the idea of drinking a salad for breakfast. So I start my morning every day with a green smoothie that is a base of dark leafy greens, generally kale, some spinach, maybe half a beet, beet greens, some chard, uh, and then you know some berries high in antioxidants to kind of you know cut the bitterness, maybe a little pineapple, hemp seeds, some chia seeds, maybe some ground flax seeds, maybe a little spirulina. And I think if you do that and you and you see how amazing it will make you feel so quickly, that kind of kickstarts people into you know rethinking some of their choices and 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 sort of gives people the motivation to want to feel that good all the time. And then you go on your own journey with it. Yeah, I love. Um, I guess I I think I'll attribute that to you. Um, I think I watched one of your videos on YouTube about um, you making one of your smoothies with your Vitamix. And I watched this video and I was just amazed because you put all that stuff that you just mentioned, <laughs> maybe some more. So a week later, I convinced my wife. I said, we need to get a Vitamix, like check out this video. So we watched it. Anyway, so we got our Vitamix and I think um, I went for a run the next day and I said, I'm going to make a smoothie. And I went nuts. Like I threw everything in there and it was disgusting. <laughs> like I probably threw yeah. du- double the amount of stuff that you just mentioned there. And then, but now I've sort of got my favorite uh, recipes. Um, but again, the, the base is the dark uh, leafy greens. And uh, we've got the, the best part is we've got our three-year-old every morning um, or almost every morning. He has like a green smoothie for part of his breakfast. And I think that, I mean, that's amazing. Like I certainly wasn't getting kale or spinach or chard in my diet when I was three. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's great. You know, I love hearing, I love hearing that. That's amazing. Yeah, so it's really so I like to recommend that to people as well. Like if you just want to do one simple thing is 
have a, a, a really good smoothie in the morning. And, and a lot of people say, you know, does it fill you up? And I mean, if you, you're eating, if you have a big salad for breakfast, I mean, that's going to fill you up. So it's just sort of the same thing, I think. Yeah, for sure. And it's so nutrient dense. It's so packed with micronutrients and phytonutrients and minerals and vitamins. And you're really nourishing your body, you know, on a different level. And it's very bioavailable because, you know, by blending it in the Vitamix, uh, for people that don't know, you know, a Vitamix is an incredibly high powered blender and it'll essentially liquefy anything. And it's almost like it's pre-digesting everything for you. So it's very easily assimilated into your body. And you can just, it's almost like you can feel it tickling your nerve endings and, and making you, you know, come alive. And, and you know, Vitamix is, a, is definitely an expensive item and it's out of some people's budget ranges. And I, I understand that. I mean, the idea when, you know, when my wife first said, we got to get a Vitamix, I was like, are you insane? Like, we're not going <laughs> to spend hundreds of dollars on a blender. That's yeah. crazy. And now I can't imagine not having it. Like it's such an integral part of, you know, how I live that we take it with us when we go out of town. That's amazing. Um, what's your, what's your, you mentioned sort of one of your, your, the bases to your smoothie, but what's your, like your go-to, what's your favorite recipe? What's, what's in it for a smoothie? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I've got four kids and my nephew lives with us and every time I open up the fridge, like I never know what I'm going to get. So yeah. It's hard to always, you know, get, do the same thing. But I think, you know, I think, uh, you know, kale and pineapple go amazingly well together. It sounds weird, but actually it's pretty delicious. So if I just start with kale and pineapple and then I kind of build from there, um, I like to, I like the spirulina and I like, I like the, you know, the superfood seeds, the hemp seeds and the, the chia seeds are fantastic. Beets are always great um, pre-workout. They have, uh, you know, a pretty pretty significant impact on your body's ability to metabolize oxygen more efficiently, and so you you can feel the difference when you're going out on a long run. So, you know, just don't freak out when you go to the bathroom the next time, <laughs> yeah. because, you know, because of the red. Um, so, you know, that would be that would be basic, and you know, I try to stay away from having them be too fruity and high in sugar. And, you know, you know, some people like now I've been doing it so long, but I don't care what it tastes like. You just drink um, it. Yeah. Yeah. I just I'm so acclimated to it. But good news is my wife is amazing. She's like a wizard with these things and knows how to make them super delicious. So we've got a bunch of uh, a, bu a bunch of blends in the cookbook that I, I think people would really enjoy. And what do you use for your liquid base? Are you using water mostly or are you using almond milk or? Um, coconut water usually, um, you know, I use, I'll use like almond milk or coconut milk when I'm making more of a kind of post-workout more desserty kind of one with bananas and stuff like that. I, I don't like to mix the almond milk with the greens for me. That that's, that's kind of a weird combo. Um, that's just me. Some people do that, but you know, coconut water or water is, is fine. Okay, cool. Um, so let's, uh, before we wrap up, let's talk a bit about your uh, exciting new project. You've got uh, your new book coming out. Can you tell us a bit, like, what's the name of the book and when's it coming out? Yeah, it's called The Plant Power Way. It comes out April 28th. Uh, it's available for pre-order <laughs> before then. In fact, we have all kinds of cool bonus gifts and giveaways to everybody who, who pre-orders the book. And you, you can find out stuff about that on my website at richroll.com. But essentially, uh, it's a cookbook slash lifestyle guide. And, you know, when I wrote Finding Ultra, that was, you know, my story. It was very much a memoir. Um, and I had plenty of nutritional information in the appendices, like 50 pages of kind of instructional information, but you know, there was no recipes. And so people would read that book and they would be inspired and they'd say, I'm on board, I'm ready to go. Now, what do I eat? 
you know, and I realized that I didn't really answer that question uh, as comprehensively as I could in that book. Yeah. So the obvious kind of next book was to do a cookbook, right? So, um, but in thinking about that, you know, I kind of went to the the Barnes and Noble and the bookstores. I looked at all the cookbooks out there. I looked at all the vegan cookbooks, the plant-based cookbooks, the paleo cookbooks, and there's no shortage of amazing, beautiful books out there. And I thought, well, what is it that I'm going to contribute to this conversation that already hasn't been said? Because I, I wasn't interested in writing a book that just recycles, you know, something that's already available to people. Um, and what I realized is I didn't see a book that really addressed the concerns of the typical modern American family. You know, the, moder- the, the, the mom and dad or, you know, the young couple that uh, is active, um, but maybe, you know, could dial things up a little bit more. They're concerned about, you know, their kids' eating habits. They're trying to get their kids off the mac and cheese and the, whatever they're feeding them at school, and they're struggling with, with that and, and, and don't have time to go online and, you know, do the research or listen to podcasts or what have you. So I really wanted to kind of, um, you know, speak to, you know, what I think is, you know, most people, right? So we put together this cookbook, which is 120 plus plant-based recipes. Um, and, you know, so it's certainly a vegan cookbook, uh, but it's not just for vegans because I think, as I said earlier, you know, everybody could do with more plant foods in, in their diet. So it's not asking you to, you know, live your life exactly the way that, that I do. Um, but we wanted to, you know, make, make, make this plant-based lifestyle more accessible for people and to kind of take it out of, you know, the hippie commune and, and really show people that, you know, not only is it doable, it's delicious and it's also modern, you know, it's, it's like a, it's an aspirational lifestyle. So there's tons of lifestyle photography of our family and kind of how we live our lives and, and, and work it. And I would say 50% of the book is, really, uh, you know, kind of a how-to guide, like a prime, a lifestyle primer on, um, you know, everything that you need to know to kind of dial, dial up your lifestyle, everything from mindfulness and meditation to where do you get your protein to opinion pieces on how to raise healthy kids, how to create healthier, in, inspire and instill in them healthier habits that are going to serve them, you know, long-term in their lives and, you know, et cetera, like all the typical questions that I get that I feel like there, there hasn't been a book yet that, that really answered those. So that's the idea behind it. That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to uh, to check it out when it comes out. And um, for listeners, I'm going to give away a copy of um, the Plant Power Way. Um, so I think um, I'll make the URL something uniquely rich. So let's go head over to healthynomics.com slash plants. And um, if you leave a comment by uh, May 8th, uh, this is 2015, Leave a comment by May 8th and I'll pick uh, one random uh, person and I'll send them a copy of Rich's book to check out and I'm sure you'll, uh, you'll, you'll love it. Cool. Yeah. So uh, anyways, Rich, let's wrap up. Um, I just want to say thanks so much for your time and uh, where can people connect with you if they want to stay up to date with uh, you know, what you're working on um, and um, you know, follow you on social media? What's, uh, what are the best places to go? Yeah, cool. I mean, Ground Zero is my website, richroll.com, R-I-C-H-R-O-L-L. Um, you can listen to my podcast there and read my blog and find out about the books. Uh, the podcast is The Rich Roll Podcast, and you can find that on iTunes as well. And I pretty much live on social media, and I'm easy to find there. <laughs> Just at Rich Roll on Twitter, at Rich Roll on Instagram, and 
at I am Rich Roll on Snapchat. Uh, it's probably the best places. Snapchat. I haven't checked that out yet. So you, yeah. people are using that too, eh? It's what all the kids are doing. Come on, Mark. You got to get on that. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure my three-year-old's on it now. Yeah. Um, anyways, okay. Well, thanks very much, Rich. And uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll touch base again soon. All right, great. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Healthy Nomics Podcast at www.healthynomics.com.